Hello and welcome to Metaphors of EdTech, a podcast by me, Martin Weller. In this podcast, I talk about metaphors of educational technology. There's an accompanying book published by Athabasca University Press, which you can check out. It's free to download or you can buy the print copy. And in each episode notes, I'll put links to interesting articles or things that are relevant. So check those out. Now, on with the episode. Welcome to a sub-series of Metaphors of EdTech, uh, where we revisit my previous book, 25 Years of EdTech, and I'm now updating it to 30 Years of EdTech. Previously, uh, when the book originally came out in 2018, a colleague, Clint Lalonde, uh, decided to set up a community project turn it into an audio book with a different person reading each chapter. You can see that over 25years.opened.ca. And Laura Pasquini set up a podcast called Between the Chapters with guests talking about that chapter each week. So I recommend visiting that. What I plan to do here is to republish the audiobook version with a preface from me, thinking about kind of how things have changed and whether I was still happy with that chapter and what's moved on since then, plus the extra five years uh, that takes us up to now. Hello, welcome to another episode of 30 Years of EdTech. And we're now up to 2006. <coughs> Is it halfway through? Uh, no, not quite. Um, and one to Web 2.0. Ah, uh, Web 2.0. The audiobook chapter, which follows after this preface, is read by Sukena Welji. And the um, Between the Chapters podcast has guests of Brian Alexander and Alexandra Pickett. So, Web 2.0. Um, I, I think, you know, it was a very exciting time, I think, Web 2.0. And I think sometimes I'm not, it, I also wonder if it was also the start of the end, I think, you know. <laughs> So I think from Web 2.0, we get, you know, lots of things we can bring together. And uh, they talk very, in, in the podcast, kind of about the excitement of that time. But I think we also end up with that kind of, those tech bros and that tech solutionism. Everyone had their own company and was their own thing. And we can just do it all with this. I think, you know, it, Web 2.0 is inevitably, we end up with Elon Musk at the end of it, which is probably not a good process. Uh, but I think, you know, I think Brian Alexander talks about um, the the backlash against social media now that we're seeing or as he terms it, a tech clash, and, um, you know, that many people are trying to close down lots of these avenues, and, and maybe rightly so, you know, that we that we saw opened up with Web 2.0. Um, and uh, Alexandra thought, reminisces about the time, and there was, a, there was a new thing coming out every week, kind of, you were signing up for a new service, and, a, you know, a, an exciting new tool to go out and try, and you had, like, these logins all over the place, and I, I remember I'd be going into tools and find out that I'd already signed up for it, I'd forgotten I'd signed up for it. Yeah, and, uh, you were forever trying to piece these things together and I, I really like the idea she talks about how she had a student to get into try all the different tools and stitching them together with this idea of small pieces lo- loosely joined and the idea of the personal learning environment that you made up from all the different tools that, that you gathered together and that was interesting not just in the kind of moving beyond the VLE thing but also kind of re-emphasized the student as creator model which I think was uh, was very powerful and it's something that we you know we've probably lost a bit sight of now i think um and, and, and brian talks about you know the value of social bookmarking rss it really felt like we had a, a kind of joint enterprise to kind of negotiate and curate the the web together um and and in the chapter i talk about you know this uh, the chapters get the sense of, you know, maybe it was also the start of the end as well. And I say that the utopia of Web 2.0 turned out to be one with scant regard for employment laws, diversity or social responsibility. And I think we see that 
still that's definitely come back to play i think and uh, maybe it's um where we also see the start of what uh cory doctorow um termed recently yeah, the institutification of of tools he was talking about tiktok and specifically he says you know there's a there's a sort of model that all follows is first they are good to their users then they abuse their users to make things better for their business customers Finally, they abuse those business customers to claw back all the value for themselves. Then they die. And I think we saw a lot of that with a lot of the Web 2.0 services. First of all, you know, APIs were open. You could do what you want with it. You could max, mix all these tools together. And I said, oh, hold on. We're not going to allow you to do that because we want you to stay on our platform. And you're not going to stay on our platform if you start doing that. So first of all, they're all, all our friends. And they kind of wanted to lock you in gradually so they could sell more advertising or sell you know, business solutions to these things. And then he, he gradually, just, the whole thing that made them valuable was that you know, people came to them and used them. That just filtered away, and they became just another you know, business management tool or whatever. But I think, um, like a lot of these things, I, I really appreciated the questions that two point, Web 2.0 made us ask of education. <clears throat> so, for, in the, for example, in the um, chapter, I talk about the, the granularity of higher education. You know, maybe it's just the the economic model of physical campuses that make us think of higher education being a certain size and the way it is. And we keep trying to play around with this with micro credentials and MOOCs and micro learning, all these kind of things. We don't, we never seem to really break it. So maybe this is the correct size, but I think it's, it's a question that's worth asking, I think. And, and, and I, like a lot of these things you know, about you know, this thing of like filtering on the, on the way in, filtering on the way out um, that David Weinberger talked about. I think that was kind of a very interesting model as well, particularly, you know, in terms of when we think about, how he approached um, academic publishing, for instance. So I just, I like just asking those questions, you know, and even if we end up back where we started from, that's fine. It's worth just making sure you don't, you don't take these things for granted and, you know, you assume that that's the way it should be and it will always be. I tend to end uh, nearly all these podcasts thinking, you know, asking two questions. The first is about post-pandemic, what does it mean? And I think <clears throat> I've been talking a lot about uh, the robustness of higher education and trying to develop more robust models that might survive the next pandemic or the next crisis, you know, we live in a, an age of perma crisis almost, it seems, like whether it's individual or uh, global or institutional. Um, and I think for that to be effective, we really need students and educators to have better literacy around all the different types of tools and you know, using the types of tools in the way that uh, Alexander talks about in the, in the, um, in the podcast. And I think um, to get away from that, you know, if, if there's a, a pandemic tomorrow, another pandemic, we're to close everything down, we'll just go back to doing online lectures again. And that's really just not taking advantage at all of all the possibilities that we saw with with the, with the web and web 2.0. Uh, in the podcast, Brian asks about, um, you know, AI and social media, you know, what's the what's the relationship there? And we're getting to the stage where AI can generate your social media content for you and tag it automatically. And presumably it's read by other AIs. We, we're not required in the process at all. You know, you know what, what is that social media uh, environment like? Um, and lastly, I think it's interesting. I say in the in the chapter that I was embarrassed about my enthusiasm for uh, Web 2.0 and maybe a bit naive. And uh, Alexandra says that you know you shouldn't be embarrassed about it. You know, she was also very enthusiastic about it. And I think maybe that's true. It's 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 good to have some enthusiasm about things and about the possibilities and particularly if that enthusiasm is not just for the technology for the sake of it but you know for the fun things the interesting things you can do about you can do with it in education and uh, i think sometimes as it's gone on education technology will become a bit jaded a bit worn down so you know a, a little burst of that enthusiasm every now and then is, is not necessarily a bad thing
Anyway, I hope you enjoy the chapter which follows after this. Welcome to 25 Years of Ed Tech, the serialized audio version of the book, 25 Years of Ed Tech, written by Martin Weller and published by Athabasca University Press. This community-produced audio version of the book is narrated by a global cast of educators with a new chapter released each week. In addition to the book, there is also an accompanying podcast called Between the Chapters, which contains analysis and discussion of each chapter of the book. For more information on the audio version of the book and the accompanying podcast, or to subscribe, visit 25years.opened.ca. Chapter 13, 2006, Web 2.0, read by Sikena Walji. This chapter marks the culmination of the user-generated approach that started with the web and was further explored through blogs and video. Whether the Web 2.0 boom signified its zenith or nadir will depend on your perspective, but certainly after the Web 2.0 bust, a sense of reality and caution pervaded it. The 2.0 suffix, much like the E prefix in the late 1990s, began to be appended to everything. University 2.0, Libraries 2.0, IT Services 2.0, and so on. As such, it quickly became both meaningless and annoying. But it is worth revisiting why it caused such excitement, since many of the issues it raised for education are still relevant. The labelling of 2.0 was to make it distinct from Web 1.0 sites. Not that anyone had referred to it that way prior to Web 2.0, which were characterised by being static with the user in a passive role. The contention was that Web 2.0 sites were characterised by social interaction, user-generated content and sharing. This oversimplified the distinction between the two. For example, as we have seen, bulletin board systems have been encouraging this sort of interaction since the 1990s. However, there had been a significant shift in the ease and amount of sharing online, so Web 2.0 provided a practical term to group together these user-generated content services, including YouTube, Flickr and blogs. As well as user-generated content, these sites use tools such as folksonomies, user-generated categories, easy means of sharing such as embed codes and RSS, and open data tools that allow mashups mixing one or more tools. It can also be viewed as more than just a useful term for a set of technologies, though. It seemed to capture a new mindset in our relation to the internet. The Web 2.0 term gained popularity from Tim O'Reilly's use of it in his influential 2005 essay in which he set out the seven principles of Web 2.0. These included principles that were more targeted at developers, but also some that had resonance for educators, including harnessing collective intelligence and realising the significance of data. Around 2006, people began to consider the application of Web 2.0 in education with Alexander, 2006, being one of the first people to seriously explore the implications. For Alexander, it was the potential of techniques such as folksonomies that was significant, and, as we have seen, which overcame some of the problems with metadata. As he put it, quote, Popularly created metadata is a rarity, yet as of February 2006, tag-centric Flickr hosts 100 million images. End quote. Paragraph 8. Similarly, social bookmarking 
through tools such as Delicious, allowed those in education to share their valuable resources, find others with similar interests, and find new content. This dramatically aided students in their research by allowing them to gather valuable sets of resources in ways that would have previously been very labour-intensive. He also highlighted the potential educational benefits of collaborative writing tools and methods for searching and collating blogs and meta-services for combining different information sources. Looking at his list now, two things stand out. The first is that hardly any of the many tools he cited are still in operation, which suggests both that it is problematic to tie education into tools with short lifespans and that the ecosystem of tools is much diminished now. The second is that some of this potential has been addressed. For example, collaborative writing is now something of a commonplace practice with tools such as Google Docs, but much of it remains unfulfilled. Rather like the applications of wikis we saw earlier, it is not the case that we look back from our current vantage point and allow ourselves the complacency of having realised these innovative approaches and gone further. Rather, our pedagogical landscape looks more conservative, if anything. The Web 2.0 boom took off, followed by the inevitable bust as it transpired that startups did require a feasible business plan after all. Collapse of the Web 2.0 boom and problems with some of the core concepts meant that by 2009 it was being declared dead, TechCrunch 2009. Inherent in much of the Web 2.0 approach was a provision of a free service, which inevitably led to data being the key source for revenue and gave rise to the oft-quoted line that, quote, if you're not paying for it, then you're the product, end quote. As Web 2.0 morphed into the dominant social media platforms, the inherent issues around free speech and offensive behaviour came to the fore. In educational terms, this raises issues about duty of care for students, recognising academic labour and respecting marginalised groups. In the, quote, anyone can make a Web 2.0 business gold rush, the privileged male developer culture of Silicon Valley was reinforced. The utopia of Web 2.0 turned out to be one with scant regard for employment laws, diversity or social responsibility. A business approach that prioritised short-term acquisition of users, usually with the hope of being taken over by one of the large software companies, resulted in little emphasis on building long-term relationships with a community. Much of the Web 2.0 culture, then, was at odds with that of higher education. But to follow Alexander's 2006 example, it is worth revisiting some of the more general principles, stripped of the hyperbole, and analysing what these more general principles hold for higher education. There are significant cultural differences between the practices that characterise education and Web 2.0 communities. For example, the latter tend to be democratic, based on a bottom-up approach and socially oriented. By contrast, higher education operates largely as a hierarchically arranged system, places a high priority on quality assurance of the content that is realised through a largely top-down process of review and formal assessment, and focuses on the performance of the individual. As with the participatory culture of video sharing, it is not necessarily the case that higher education should adopt these cultural values, but rather it is worth exploring whether there is a benefit in blending them into existing practice. There are three such aspects derived from the Web 2.0 approach that could have an impact on higher education, unbundling, granularity and quality. There are more possibilities but these three illustrate the case for considering the more generic aspects of Web 2.0 beyond specific software. Starting with the arrival of the first internet boom, 
and then accelerated through Web 2.0 was the concept of unbundling. Web 2.0 and the internet in general saw some of the bonds that held industries together weaken, with the consequence that their component parts became unbundled into separate web services. The idea of unbundling in higher education has attracted media attention and investment, although in reality the picture is mixed. Christensen, Horn, Caldera and Soares, 2011, have argued that the education system will inevitably be disrupted because universities operate a conflated business model, wherein several means of revenue generation function simultaneously, which leads to inefficiencies compared to providers who specialise in just one of them. Staten, 2012, confidently predicted that, quote, there is no polite way to say it. The private sector is coming for education, and American society should embrace it. Entrepreneurs are one of a set of forces that will challenge the existing system of higher education as we know it. End quote, page one. The Unbundled University Project, Chenevitz 2019, set out to examine these types of claims around unbundling, the degree to which it was happening, and what its implications were for learners, educators, and universities. The researchers reported on possibilities for unbundling in all aspects of higher education and stated in their conclusion that, quote, the situation is dynamic, in flux, and highly contested. It is being negotiated and renegotiated right now. End quote. Chenevitz 2018, Conclusion, Paragraph 1. While unbundling poses a threat to the notion of universities and privileges, certain types of learners, it also, quote, can be part of the solution and can offer opportunities for reasonable and affordable access and education for all. Unbundling and rebundling are opening spaces, relationships and opportunities that did not exist even five years ago. These processes can be harnessed and utilised for the good. End quote. Conclusion, paragraph two. The second aspect that Web 2.0 raises for education is the consideration of the granularity of education. Sharing services allow smaller chunks of content to be distributed, clips from movies, individual songs rather than albums, photos out of context, and so on. Higher education, as conventionally interpreted, is typified by the undergraduate degree program. This takes three to four years of continuous study, comprises several modules, and has regular exam and assessment sessions, with students being assessed in terms of the knowledge they demonstrate of the taught modules. There are, of course, variations to each of these elements. Study can occur at a distance, it can be part-time, assessment can be within a portfolio and continuous, there can be breaks in study, and so on. But each of these adaptations is usually mapped onto the existing standard model. They represent modifications to it, not replacements. However, it may be that many of these assumptions are bound up in economic models that have their roots in the physical aspects of education. For example, if students must come to a physical campus, then it makes sense to bundle all their modules into a short time span to minimise inconvenience and to manage staff time. These restrictions have moulded what we deem to constitute a higher education experience, but perhaps this packaging is merely a product of the physical format and administrative and financial structures have been built up around it. Even when courses have moved online, they have usually followed similar conventions in terms of length and assessment. Several initiatives attempt to tweak this granularity. We should look at digital badges later, but means of assessing different sized chunks of learning taken in different settings can be seen as a means of attempting to make this granularity more flexible. For example, in New Zealand, the Quality Assurance Agency of Higher Education, NZQA 2018, launched a scheme to recognise micro-credentials, 
which were identified as, quote, smaller than qualifications and focus on skill development opportunities not currently catered for in the tertiary education system. End quote, paragraph two. The OERU, a global cooperative of universities offering open courses in OER, offer the first year of study free, and students can then transition into formal education, Chenevitz 2019. The Open University provides a course that allows students to bring learning acquired through OER on any subject and gain credit for it. What these and countless other endeavours illustrate is experimentation around the edges of what constitutes higher education. The last consideration Web 2.0 raises for higher education is that of quality. Weinberger, 2007, summarised the change that Web 2.0 brought as, quote, filtering on the way out, end quote, rather than filtering on the way in. Higher education processes are nearly always based on filtering on the way in. The general review process creation of learning content, selection of research proposals, student admission. This is one way of maintaining quality, but the Web 2.0 approach of allowing anyone to publish and then filtering through rating and relevance may also have a place. For example, the Open Repository for Physics Publications, Archive, has become the main site for such publications and applies only a light filter. These examples illustrate that while everyone, including myself, is now rather embarrassed by the enthusiasm they felt for Web 2.0 at the time. It contained within it some significant challenges and opportunities for higher education. While the rejection of much of Web 2.0 is understandable, given the excessive hype that accompanied it, and the more we've come to appreciate the associated problems, there are still some core issues in terms of practice that education should benefit from. And in EdTech, we need to find a way of oscillating less between extremes of acceptance and rejection and instead examine the more fundamental issues that can be explored. Thank you for listening to 25 Years of EdTech, the serialized audiobook version of Martin Weller's 25 Years of EdTech, published by Athabasca University Press and narrated by a global cast of volunteers. Intro music for the podcast is Abstract Corporate by Grip Sound and released under a Creative Commons attribution license. To subscribe to the weekly audio series and the accompanying podcast between the chapters, visit 25years.opened.ca. listening to metaphors of edtech remember to subscribe if this is your bag uh, and also check the episode notes for any useful links and fun things there 